Welcome back. You're listening to the Child Safeguarding Podcast by Pointing Consulting and Advisory. Here's your host, Brad Pointing. Yay, good one. Yay. Hello and welcome back to the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm going to do something a little bit different at the top. I'm going to do the plug at the top of the episode for a change. So PCA is looking to deliver more training sessions in the second half of this year, which is good news for podcast listeners. Uh, Organisations that book and pay for any of PCA's standard training sessions before the end of 2021 and mention this promotion will receive 10% off the cost of in-person training and 15% off for virtual training. The sessions can be delivered in 2022, but they must be confirmed and paid before the end of 2021. So head to pointingconsulting.xyz for training session details and to book. So that's 10% off for in-person sessions and 15% off virtual sessions. Just for telling PCA you listened to the podcast and heard about the promotion on the Child Safeguarding Podcast. Now let's get into the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Child Safeguarding Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Pointing, and my guest today is Claire Rogers. Claire is the Executive Director of OHO, which is a social software enterprise to manage employee and volunteer work accreditations with a primary purpose to help organisations to make sure that everyone that is part of their mission is actually safe to be there. Thank you for being here with me today, Claire. Wonderful to meet with you, Brad. Indeed, awesome. So, uh, it's actually a small milestone for the Child Safeguarding Podcast today. It is now one year old, and Claire, you're the first guest for season two of the podcast. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but before we do jump into probably talking about OHO, which we'll, we'll spend a bit of time on today, um, Claire, I was looking through your um, your LinkedIn profile, and you have an incredibly impress- impressive resume. Um, so can you tell me a bit about some of your career highlights and I guess that journey to your current role with OHO? Yes, Brad. Well, I started with a degree in ling- uh, linguistics, English and mathematics and um, went through the university experience, loved every minute of it, but had no idea what I was going to do. Ended up falling into a graduate program in banking uh, and really enjoyed a lot of uh, leadership opportunities in the organisation ultimately culminating in running digital banking. So I've always had this passion around technology that came from an experience where I got to run part of the organisation overseas in London. And I was a consumer in London, as, um, as you do. And I had packages arriving at my door, ordered online. Uh, this is back in 2000. And uh, arriving on arriving the next day beautifully packaged and delivered um the next morning and so when i came back to australia in 2001 i went oh i'd like to do that that was really convenient and i couldn't the best thing i could find was a, a target catalog in pdf and you couldn't even order anything from it so i thought well this is really interesting because i'd always thought australians were quick to adopt technology and so grew my lifelong passion of of leading parts of organizations in transforming for that consumer change essentially we all adopted technology really quickly uh, but um you know the organizations that deliver the services that we need had to catch up and so ended up running a part of anz's digital banking 
and also then went off to World Vision, um, which was kind of a lot of people say, oh, that would have been a really different job. But it actually drew on a lot of the skills that I learned in banking, uh, in providing services to organisations, but also particularly, again, a really digital job because donors can't always get to the field to actually see the impact that their funds are having in addressing poverty and so digital is a really powerful tool i used to talk about it as being the glass the window with which donors could see through and see the impact of their contribution and so uh yeah so ended up leading a, a beautiful organization with an incredible purpose but again with that sort of digital and, and tech theme and so then uh, after I left World Vision, I had an opportunity, uh, one of my colleagues from ANZ was a founder of OHO, and he approached me and said, would you come and help us build this, this mission that we have? And um, I thought, wow, the combination of technology and purpose to put that together in an area where um, there really isn't a lot of op options for organizations to address this question of safety and foundational safety in their organization. So that's how I came to be at OHO. <laughs> Fair enough. Thank you so much. Um, and I did mention it in that introduction that OHO is a social software enterprise. But what does that mean? Yeah, really, we are a tech um, solution for a business problem, uh, as are many companies. But the reason we are of social purpose is that our primary inspiration was um, driven by a survivor's experience. And one of the founders went with us, uh, with a, co a colleague in a sister company who courageously uh, was a witness in the Royal Commission into institutional child abuse. And uh, the founders went with him to support him as he gave his testimony and they stayed and heard a number of other testimonies during that time. As he says, uh, his heart was torn out by that day and it changed his life forever. But he came back and said technology should be able to do something to protect children, particularly children from child abuse. Uh, should be able to protect children. And so what can technology do? And that's that was the birth of OHO. We've expanded it now because there are other industries and, and services that work with the vulnerable. So disability, um, sporting, obviously, with children, um, and aged care. In time, I think there's going to be a regulatory um, and registration process in aged care to stop abuse and neglect in, in that sector. So we're adding accreditations all the time so that we can fulfill that social purpose of seeing the vulnerable protected and, and no more vulnerable than our children. Yeah, okay. Um, so tell me, uh, tell me the story of OHO. Uh, you've obviously alluded to a few details there, but um, yeah, tell me the full story of OHO. Yeah. Well, we started with uh, building out, we actually had some, organizations come to us and say, can you help us with this problem? And the problem being that it's relatively easy to manage a check when I'm hiring someone to get a verification that that check is a legitimate check. So a working like with a, children a, check. Yeah. 
Thank you. Like yeah. a working with children check or a, um, a police check is used as well. But the challenge with a police check is it's only at a point in time. Mm -hmm. And you have to renew those and run a risk between the times that you're verifying a police check or looking yeah. at a police check. Um, but can you help us manage this accreditation process? Because we have large numbers of people working with the vulnerable and it's really hard to be able to check regularly that people um, still hold those accreditations. And so uh, that was kind of the genesis was the combination of these experiences and witnesses that stories that we'd heard of where this is, this had failed and people had organizations had either not checked negligently mm -hmm. or hidden records or um, altered records uh, that OHO was born. OHO does two things. It checks the register every, at least every week. In some cases, we check more often that the card, a card is still valid. So a working with children check card, an allied health professional, which covers all of your medical um, qualifications, national disability worker card, teachers checks, all of those are checked at least every week for their validity. And the reason this is important is that nearly uh, sorry, I should rephrase that, that every day at least one working with children check is revoked in almost every state and territory in Australia. And so you cannot rely on just the sighting of that card mm -hmm. and the check that you did at onboarding. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And then um, thinking specifically of Queensland's blue card system, um, the intention there is that if there is a change to the status of someone's card, um, the, the blue card services should be making an outbound call to, to get in contact with that organisation to let them know about that change, um, which is then obviously for that organisation a very reactive process that until they're told by someone else that, that there's a problem, Correct. the assumption is that there is no problem, that things are fine. Whereas if you're using uh, the service that you provide, more likely than not, uh, that employer is going to know through their own checking um, that there's an issue with uh, that, that individual's status. They won't know what the specific issue is, but they'll know that they need to take action um, before they even get that call from Blue Card Services. So turning, taking that into a proactive process then. Yes, more often than not, the technology uh, beats the notification system. Each of the registers has unique differences because mm -hmm. we have to live with a situation where there are a different register in each state. Yep. And, um, you know, maybe one day that will change. Mm -hmm. But for now, we have to live with that. And there are complexities and unique differences in each of the registers. In five states, the individual owns the obligation to link themselves with an organization mm -hmm. and what that means is they can link themselves to get a job and then delink themselves afterwards and the organization would not know so the way oho protects organizations is we check if you tell us someone is an employee or a volunteer with your organization yeah. we will check every week regardless and this is very important from a um, completing legal obligations to ensure that the workplace is safe mm -hmm. and it compensates for some of the challenges in some of the systems. Also, of course, if you're a national organisation, it's a nightmare to navigate. Different it registers require different information. We take all that complexity away and automate it for you. Mm -hmm.
Wow, that's awesome. Yes, particularly when you're operating yeah, in multiple jurisdictions, I can definitely see the, uh, the ease of service in being able to do that. Um, so my understanding then is that uh, when an organization joins or brings you on for the first time, there's obviously then going to be a, a process to, to migrate that data uh, of their, their current uh, working with children checks or, or whatever other checks you're, you're doing for them into your system to then be able to check. You'll do some, um, I guess, exception checking, find the issues, fix all those issues. And then pretty much from then, um, I, I get the feeling that you're doing all the work. It's an, it's an uh, automated process where you're going to let the organization know if there's any changes or problems from then on. Is that is that a good quick summary? <laughs> yeah, well done. Uh, <laughs> two things, it's very easy. Sometimes organizations think this is a, a hard process to get on board. It's very easy to onboard either uh, a data upload, we can get you up, you know, live by lunchtime is a phrase mm -hmm. that I like to use. And then the the checking begins. One of the challenges, of course, is that organizations actually don't have good data. Mm -hmm. And they also, there's a myth running around that their HR system does this for them. All the oh. HR system does is, is hold the number and the name and potentially the expiry date. Yeah. That doesn't mean that data is correct because it's yeah. not verified against any register. So we see typically 30% is a minimum data problem on mm -hmm. onboarding. So immediately we start to close the risk because we start to find where corrections need to be made. But secondly, um, we sometimes see our worst case data imports have been up around the 90% mark. So organizations are thinking that they've got this covered, but actually all the data they've collected is actually not going to protect them. Wow. And is, is not, uh, in a state where it would be a defense if they were found to have an issue with someone. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, as you're talking, and, and as I say semi-frequently on this podcast, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but um, thinking about uh, in about five jurisdictions around the country now, maybe even a, a few more, there's um, the civil liability legislation specifically mm -hmm. outlines that organizations have a duty of care to protect the children and young people they provide services to uh, from experiencing specifically sexual abuse by someone associated with the organization and i'm thinking specifically of queensland which i know i know best but i know other states have similar wording where it says that those organizations must take all reasonable steps to protect mm -hmm. a child and making sure that you've done adequate background checking would seem to me <laughs> to be a very reasonable step to expect an organization to have taken. And if you're saying in some cases, and obviously I'm not gonna ask you to name names, but in some cases, if 90% um, of that data is, is not accurate, um, that's a huge risk and a huge issue for those organizations. And those yeah. children, obviously then as well. Yeah, I mean, we've already picked up red flags for mm. organizations who've come on and that have led to people being removed from access. Yeah. And we've only just got started. So, you know, we, we estimate that we're currently protecting around 250,000 children. Mm -hmm. There are 4.7 million kids in Australia and we wanna see them protected. Whether yeah. organizations do it by coming on to OHO or whether they find a way to do it themselves, it needs to be done. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And um, 
do you have you got connections in so obviously being a child safeguarding consultant and a child safeguarding podcast I'm, I'm thinking specifically about children here but um do you have connections with all of the different working with children check schemes all around australia or are there still some yes. that are yet to bring online uh, no, we have all of them as part of our service. Now we have national coverage on working with children checks and uh, teachers licenses and allied health professionals as national. Um, we are bringing on the National Disability Worker Card. Mm -hmm. The only state where uh, when we're not able to manage coverage, but we can manage expiry management is ACT because there is no register mm -hmm. that you can check against which is kind of shocking, but yep. it is what it is. Yep, and uh, I guess just to timestamp that, we are talking specifically in um, July 2021 at the moment. So if people are coming back to this a little bit later, that, that situation may have changed um, or possibly may not have. <laughs> it's hard to tell. Um, and I just want to come back, Brad, to your point around the legal obligations. Some mm -hmm. organisations haven't noticed that post the Royal Commission into institutional child abuse, mm -hmm. the Wrongs Act was amended mm -hmm. in multiple, at least the Eastern Seaboard state jurisdictions to change the onus from being on the victim to prove that they weren't cared for mm -hmm. to the organisation to prove that they took reasonable care. Yes. And I, for one, wouldn't want to be standing up in a court of law defending my organisation for the simple fact that I didn't do regular checks. Mm. on someone's working with children check and ended up with an incident. Yeah, yeah, very true. That Yeah, it's um, they need to be able to demonstrate they're taking those reasonable steps at the time um, that they had appropriate practice. So it's not even, uh, again, assumption, it's not, it's not even going to be that they had a, appropriate documentation. They're probably going to need to be able to demonstrate that they were actually effectively um, checking those things. They were actually following their procedures and, and doing that work, not just that they had high quality procedures written down about what they should be doing. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it's such a simple thing. And then thing the other thing, the other thing that organizations rely on is their policies, their employment policies, which say that the employee must tell them if they're convicted or charged with a crime. Mm -hmm. And that's for, for predators and pedophiles. That's like asking the burglar to come and tell you that they've just robbed their house, you know, robbed your house. So, you know, that they, we don't like to think that we would have someone unsuitable in our organisation because we know everyone and, and we're sure they're okay, but we, we know that pedophiles hide in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And simply checking that everyone in your organisation is safe to be there is a is a fundamental foundational piece of child safety that I think every organization needs. Yeah, definitely. And obviously then coupled with uh, your ongoing um, uh, practices around how you maintain that, that child safe environment once you've, you've onboarded those people into your organization. So um, yeah, I talk really frequently about the idea that when we're going through our recruitment and doing child safe recruitment, we're looking to um, screen in two ways. We're actively trying to screen out people that we assess as being unsuitable to work with children and we're actively trying to screen in people that we think are going to be highly suitable um, first to work with children but also to then to help progress our child safeguarding culture within our organisation 
And then obviously, yeah, we've got those practices that we're going to keep doing there around how we maintain the safety of those environments once we've brought those people in. Um, so it's definitely one of many tools that organizations should be using. So um, a good recruitment yeah. process is absolutely necessary. But again, it's just one of many checks that child safe organizations use. And we don't solve all of the child safe standards, but we do one of them really, really well. And that is number five that says mm -hmm. the people in my organization are suitable to work here. And we don't just do it once, we do it ongoing. And that I think is the only safe way to be confident that your mission and purpose is safe and protected and the children in your care equally safe. Okay, so I think we've talked uh, a fair bit about what it is sort of the, the, the benefit that OHO brings to their clients, but um, a really uh, relevant question that, that I'm often faced uh, when I'm working with clients. Um, so is, is your service affordable for organisations? Well, we think it's pretty affordable, Brad. It's based on the number of accreditations that an organisation needs checked and the pricings on the website. But I look at this in terms of what could happen if we don't do this? Uh, firstly, so uh, in Victoria, there's a $200,000 fine for recklessly, they even use the word reckless, for assuming that your systems and processes are doing this uh, or, or that your people are, are safe. Uh, and to me, for, for many of the organisations we work with, they're not-for-profits, a fine like that would put at risk their licence with the ACNC, I believe. Um, so it's not the penalties that uh, uh, should motivate us to do things, but um, it's the, the risk associated and the reputational damage, not to mention the trauma that happens as a result of an incident. That's probably far more important, but the reality is you put a whole organization's mission and purpose at risk if you don't manage this well. So. So that's um, the first thing. The The second part of it is that we do this extremely efficiently. It's very difficult to manage. So I do acknowledge that until we came along, it's actually very hard to be manually checking. Most of the registers only let you check one person at a time. Mm -hmm. If you've got a large workforce, a large volunteer network, that's a lot of time and effort and a lot of organizations have sheepishly acknowledged to me that they just haven't had the resources to put into that. We're far cheaper than the resources you would have to have on staff to be doing the checking at the level of rigor that's required. Yeah. So that's the way I think about it. And, and, you know, we've talked about this, Brad, what price for child safety you know, if you're not willing to make an investment in this space, that says something about your organisation. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's a really fair assessment that, yeah, if, if child safety and wellbeing doesn't even get a budget line um, when it comes time to do that, then, yeah, very quickly the question can be asked about how serious you are about keeping children safe. And Brad, let me remind your listeners that this is not just an issue, an operational issue for, a, for workforce management. The very first story told in the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse, the very first case study that was looked at was a CEO who's mm -hmm. working with Children Check had been revoked and he didn't tell or lied to his board about that situation, which allowed yeah. him to continue to have access. So we produce a board report independent 
that can go up to the board and show them how this risk is being managed. But secondly, we have a, a long-term beyond 45-year audit trail of the checking that organisations are doing. So we never delete any records. If someone leaves an organisation, we make them inactive uh -huh. and the record of checking remains. So that if a case comes out in five years time and someone comes back and says, well, what was organisation X doing about this? What was going on in their organisation at the time? We can produce that audit. They can produce that audit as a defence against the checking that was going on. Wow, that's awesome to, yeah, to have that that data, which, which again is one of those uh, recommendations coming out of the Royal Commission is about how long organisations need to retain information, retain data and those sorts of things. So it's really good to hear that you've got that in place in line with those recommendations too. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, in, in um, preparing for our chat today, I did jump onto uh, the OHO website, um, which I'll obviously put a link to in the podcast notes for people as well. Uh, and yeah, did did go through to find the pricing there, and pleasantly, actual numbers were were on the screen, which is always very good to see. Uh, and that was my assessment. Really, was that, that this is a very affordable thing for organisations, both for, for small organisations and very large ones too. When you think about it as a um, proportion of of revenue and those sorts of things, uh, it really brings into line that this this is in some cases quite a negligible amount of money uh, in an overall budget. Uh, and when I am working with uh, with clients and doing audits and, and working on how we're going to improve their safeguarding, these are one of the conversations that I do have quite frequently with people about how they can make this process easier for themselves uh, and how they can also increase the, um, the safety uh, that they're offering for their, uh, for their service users. Um, and maybe you're not going to be too keen to answer this one. Are you the only organisation working in this space or do you have competitors here in Australia? We have looked high and low. There was a precursor for us um, that uh, had a go at this. They, they started from a different place. We, we've started from solving it for organisations because that's if we solve it there, then we've got a chance of protecting kids. They started from helping people, individuals to produce their identity for organisations to, to get employment. And that's an interesting task, but it's not the main game. Yeah. So uh, there are various, you know, they call them digital wallets, digital identity wallets. There are various organisations doing stuff there, okay. which is the kind of the closest thing to a competitor. But our job and our primary purpose is to solve this for organizations because if if we shut the door or we put the fences around organizations who are working with children protect the mission mm -hmm. then we've got a really high chance of actually um you know take as i said ha having helping organizations remove people that shouldn't be there yeah awesome okay so as we start to close out, um, I end the podcast by asking every guest the same two questions. And as the, the podcast uh, continues and grows, we're building up a really good bank of information, which, uh, which hopefully listeners are finding useful. Uh, so the first question that I ask is, if you could share one piece of advice or knowledge for organizations which are only just beginning their child safe organization journey, what would that be? 
Yeah, well, Br Brad, I've learned far too much about the working with children check system, or <laughs> well, more than I wanted to know, put it that way. And uh, my my counsellors, because I've spoken to a lot of experts in the child safety space, and they don't even know some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So my counsel is think about your foundational layer, which is the checking of working with children checks, because all the other um, child safety standards speak to culture, speak to training, speak to using a voice. All of those are vitally important. But if you don't, if you've got people in your organisation who shouldn't be there, that will make those things ineffective. Mm -hmm. It'll also, um, you know, I, I advocate for OHU because I think if you can make this operationally easy and give time back to your child safety officers to focus on those other nine things that are vitally important for a child safe organization why would you have them doing admin when they can be working on the cultural awareness and the training and the reporting and the helping people have a voice they are really important things so get this foundation covered and then you can uh, have the freedom to work with great energy on the other uh, requirements Great, thank you. Yeah, I, I talk again to clients about the idea that recruitment is your, your first line of defense in keeping children safe. Uh, so if we're doing the best we can to only bring high quality people into the organization, it's gonna make delivering on everything else we're trying to do to keep children safe a, a much easier, more manageable task because the people that are there, they wanna do that work too and they're gonna help us get it done. Um, can also, I just add a caution there, Brad? Though? Sure. People might, be safe at their recruitment, mm -hmm. but we know that they get revoked those accreditations. Yep. And so uh, something can happen that changes their suitability and that's why we exist. Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and what about parents and carers? What do you think is important for parents and carers to know about keeping children safe in organizations and institutions? Well, I go back to my experience of being a parent here, Brad. Mm -hmm. I have two kids both a bit more grown up. We've got uh, a uni degree now and a, a year 12. But um, I put them in all sorts of activities, dancing, basketball, school, childcare. I had nannies at home, always with this sense of, I hope this is going to be okay. I don't know how to know it's going to be okay. And, um, you know, that, that it's profound trust that parents have to make in putting their children into organisational activities and organisational care. And so for me, it's about, um, you know, how can we reassure parents and carers that what they're doing, that they've, they've got their children in a safe place? And how can we uh, reduce that anxiety that happens? And so what we have done for organisations who are part of OHO is we give them a badge that they're part of the OHO community, which gives re and they can put that on their website, they can put that on their doors, which gives them reassurance, gives their parents and carers reassurance that this protection is in place. Uh, so we'd love lots of organisations to come and be part of the OHO community so that parents can have that confidence and trust yeah. that their children are safe. Awesome, thank you. Um, and it's a fairly safe assumption that parents expect that their children are kept safe in organisations. We can make that assumption because 
they leave their children in those organisations and a rational, reasonable parent wouldn't be doing that if they didn't think their children were safe or they were there. And then obviously the responsibility that establishes for us to keep those children safe is um, paramount. Claire, if people want to learn more about you or get in contact with either yourself or with OHO, how can they do that? Yes, the website's there, uh, www.weareoho.com. You can reach out on there. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. The team is ready and willing to talk. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for being my guest today, Claire Rogers, Executive Director of OHO. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to rate it five stars, leave a review and tell your friends and contacts all about it. It does make a huge difference. So thank you very much. And we will see you next time on the Child Safeguarding Podcast.